another key part of our church. So keep praying. God's doing awesome things. And if you're pricked in any of these ways in your heart to serve, we'd love to talk to you. So see us after service in the foyer. Thanks so much. Good morning, guys. Why don't you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew? Uh, we have been in a series on Sunday mornings going through the Gospel of John. We're going to shift a little bit today, so open up to these two spots. Put your finger in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, Matthew 22, and then also open up to the Gospel or the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. I'll tell you a little bit about that. So as soon as you guys find those spots, Matthew 22 and then Acts 10, just kind of hold them, and then we will uh, circle back to that. So as I mentioned, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of John. We'll circle back to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, excited. We have some cool stuff coming down the pike um, as we make our way through the Gospel of John in about two weeks, I believe. Uh, one of my very good friends, his name is Jamie Pappas, who's actually going to be teaching here on Sunday morning. He runs Crew, Campus Crusade for Christ Crew. Super good guy. He's been a long, long-standing friend of our, our church family here. Excited to have him. Uh, share and teach, and then at the end of the month, my good friend my, uh, Nick Billich, some of you guys know who Nick has been, they, they moved away for a year, they'll be back soon, uh, he's also going to be preaching, I'm actually going to be at a conference at the end of the month, excited about that, going to be in Indiana, I don't even know where Indiana is at, to be quite frank with you, that sounds pretty bad, I know it's somewhere outside of California, um, I have a conference back there, which I'm excited about being a part of, um, that being said, what we're going to be doing today, the next two weeks, is uh, I thought it'd be a really good time. Every year, we like to kind of pause, reflect a little bit upon who we are as a church, kind of what we think about uh, in terms of our calling, like why has God called us as a church to be here? Like what's our, what's our, our, what's our aim? What's our end game? What's our desire? What are we sensing God doing? Um, you can think of it as vision or values or however you want to frame it. I don't really care. But the big idea is, is as a community, we're more than just simply a weekly event that happens here on Sunday morning. Like we truly are invited by God to live according to his power in San Luis Obispo, on the Central Coast, and beyond. And there's an aim. There's a, there's a purpose that God has for us. Um, I always like to say this. We have our, our men's group that we meet on every other Wednesday night. This was last Wednesday was our, our launch of that. And it was, honestly, I think probably the, the best launch that we've had. And it was amazing. So excited to be a part of what God's doing here in the men. If you're not currently involved in a men's group, um, I would highly recommend not missing being a part of what's happening here. It's awesome. God's doing something fresh and really, really cool. Uh, one of the things that we do every time we gather is we recite um, like a call and response, what's called the Apostles' Creed. It's a way of anchoring ourselves, tethering ourselves. One of the things I communicate to the guys that our job is not to innovate the faith. Our job is to be faithful to the faith that's been given to us. And that's a radical shift. There's been so many attempts to be like, how do we make Christianity palatable and cool and amazing and sexy for this culture? And I would suggest to you, you're not. That's not your job. Your job is to be faithful with what has been given to you by generations, countless generations that have gone before us, and to live faithfully according to that. And, and that becomes an act of sacrifice and an act of beauty, that when it's faithfully lived into what happens is we end up looking like Jesus, acting like Jesus, treating others the way Jesus would treat other people. And there's something compellingly beautiful about that. 
So this is really just kind of a, a yearly attempt to reframe our minds and understandings around what we are just sensing God calling us to be here on the Central Coast and beyond. So I'm going to start with just a simple question. We'll get to those verses in just a, in just a moment. Um, but the big question is, is, who are we and what are we to be doing? In other words, who are we as a church, as Calvary Slow, and what are we sensing God calling us to be doing? I like to think of it this way. We have principles and we have practices. Uh, the practices are going to change. They're going to change based upon our culture, based upon our community. But the principles, this is kind of cool because the principles never change. The principles that we're going to talk about here right now have literally been embedded into every single community of people that have followed Jesus on planet Earth since the beginning. So it's, it's no different. It's nothing new. We're not innovating anything. We're just simply trying to be faithful to those principles. We'll go through what those principle, principles are in just a second. The practices, in other words, how they get kind of played out, are going to vary based upon how those principles are impacting you in your particular context. And one of the things I'm going to be leaning more heavy on this morning are the principles and the practices. What my invitation for you is for you to become so familiar with the principles of what Scripture teaches about who we are supposed to be, what God's calling us into, that as you follow those principles, you will begin to ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God, the Father, God, how do you want me to practice this in my current state or my culture, in my community, in my neighborhood, uh, in the needs that are all around me? How to be faithful to that? That's going to vary. Um, from person to person and from circumstance to circumstance and from what you have available and your giftings and so on and so forth. But the principles will always be the same. So I want to really kind of focus mainly upon the principles. And I'll just describe it like this way. So who are we and what are we to be doing? I'll just kind of describe it this way. We are a community of people being transformed by Jesus to, here's the principles, love God, love others, do good. We say this all the time. So if you've been around here for any length of time, you've, it's, this is not new to you. We are called to love God, love others, and do good. Now, the practices might look like, for example, with loving God, it might look like, or it will look like devotion to God's presence, meaning we love God because we love God. We want to be with God. We want to be in his presence. We want to to, to, uh, to cultivate that, to live in a, such a way that as we are in God's presence, that we are living in obedience to him, that we love him. And that might take the shape of prayer and scripture and fasting and uh, sometimes, you know, coming to gathered worship or singing songs. And there's a lot of different variety of journaling, whatever. I mean, you can fill in the blank. But the big idea is to cultivate, to steward God's presence because of the principle we love God. The second thing is love others. We'll mainly focus on love God today. In fact, I'm not even going to go into love of others and doing good because we will focus on that more next week. But I really just want to focus on the big question of love God. And more specifically, how do we do this rightly? And we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to read two passages that basically everything in terms of our principles are framed upon. So these are the two passages that really everything that we're going to describe as far as principles as a church Everything is hooked upon this or framed around this. I'm going to read these two passages. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40 says this. Jesus then said to them, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Some of your translations might say might. This is the first and the greatest of all the commandments. And then second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and prophets. So Jesus is pretty clear. 
Like he wants to make it unambiguous that the most important things that God calls us to is to love him and to love our neighbor. And everything else is going to be framed around that. Take a look at Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Uh, This is a sermon, and in the sermon, they're making reference to Jesus and what he did. And I love the summary of Jesus' life. It just simply points out, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So we see God the Father anointing his son Jesus with the Holy Spirit. So you have kind of this Trinitarian nature, uh, one God uh, uh, coming forth or being displayed through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus do? And then it goes on to say, Jesus went about doing good in healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Uh, I would suggest to you that the remainder of the entire New Testament is a way of working out this idea. How did Jesus do good? How do we do good? How do we demonstrate goodness in our lives? And what are ways in which we are living in partnership with the Holy Spirit and loving God and loving our neighbors? What are some practical ways that we can actually then begin to do good in our culture? Now, again, I have to say this because for the most part, we are Protestants. Are we saved by our good works? Obviously not. No. We are, we, like I said, we, we, are, we are not believers that somehow that your good works earn you any favor or recognition or merit from God. But those who are saved, those who have been transformed by God, do good. It's just simply the way it works. How do we know this and why do we say this? Because Jesus himself does good. And if Jesus is alive in his people and we are cherishing his presence and loving those whom he loves and loving the things that he loves and being about the things that he's about, then we will take our lives, begin to look like the life of Jesus, which is going about doing good. So again, in summary, we sense very clearly like our mission, our aim is to love God, love others, and do good. So I want to focus the remainder of our time on just asking this question. What does it look like for us to love God? How do we love God rightly? I want to get really practical And number one, obviously, because we are Bible teaching church, like how do we do this rightly according to Scripture? Not just in terms of me making stuff up or us trying to put together our best of opinions or best practices, but really what does Scripture tell us and how to actually love Jesus? And surprisingly, there's a lot of great content to really kind of absorb and think about and consider and to reframe our lives around in terms of practice. So let's jump right into this. I want to start with a little uh, quote. This I'm not even going to pronounce this guy's name because I don't want to sound silly, but I think it's Antoine. Is that right? I don't speak French. I don't know. Does anybody want to take a shot at that? Antoine? No, okay, you guys are just leaving me up here hanging. That's all cool. Um, all right, so this guy had this quote that I read in a book a while back, and I thought it was pretty awesome. And he says this. He says, if you want to, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. I love this. It, for some reason, it reminds me of C.S. Lewis and just kind of this picture of Narnia, like paint a brilliant picture of Narnia. Now you're going to want to go through the chest, right? You get the idea? Uh, and I think this, his image here is that if you're able to cast the vision of the, the greatness of the love of God, then you will want to step into it or press into it, lean into the love of God because it's so immense, so good, so life-giving. And that's kind of the big idea, that um, God's love is so much of a treasure that 
once you get a glimpse of that, once that becomes something that captures your imagination, your attention, your affection, you're enchanted by it. You can't live without it. And so you will do everything you can in your life to invest your time, treasure, talents to live in that, to, li- to lean into that. Uh, Paul the Apostle would put it this way in Ephesians. He spends literally the entire first three chapters just talking about God's immense, uh, endless love. And then he kind of gets to this place of like, therefore, I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He says this, and he says, our God and Father has blessed us with, in, his, in Jesus' his Son with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he chose us. And Paul just goes on and on and on, describing the, the, the immensity of the love of God. And his whole aim is to really build a very robust picture of God's love to capture our attention so that then, as we understand this, we step into that. We want our lives to be about loving God. Again, New Testament writings also describe we love him because he first loved us. There's an order to how we love God. We don't just wake up one day and all of a sudden like want to love God. There's something that awakens us first and foremost. So what Jesus would describe as being born again. And I would just want to pause real quick. If you've never had this experience, if you, if you would look at your heart today and say, for the most part, there is merely an apathy in your heart towards God. It's, it's possible that either, A, you, you've never been awakened. You're still a slave to sinful desires and proclivities. Or maybe at some point you had an awakening and then you're your love for Jesus has just kind of been drowned out by a variety of other things that can choke it out. Like, it's been quenched. That can happen, too. And sometimes what God wants to do is bring us back to an awakening, a, a re-awareness of who he is and what he's done for us. It's kind of like what he would say in the book of Revelation, where he says uh, to this particular church in Ephesus, he says, you've, you've left your first love. Return back again to that. So there's a really strong possibility of returning back to that love, that yes, we can drift from that love. Yes, our hearts can grow cold. Yes, we can grow unaware. Yes, we can like, like become forgetful of the love of God. It's one of the reasons why we do communion. It's a way of reminding us and reawakening us to the depth of the love of God. Why? We all have amnesia. All of us. We get really quickly and easily distracted. Anybody bear witness to that? Yeah? All right. So let's just jump in and begin to take a look at uh, several different ways in which I think we can actually love God rightly. I'll just go through basically all four of these. I'll kind of leave the last one for next week. It'll be a nice little uh, appetizer getting into what we will finish up next week. So let's jump right in and take a look at devotion, obedience, awareness, and then love of others. All of these are scriptural ways in which the scripture teaches us, the Bible teaches us how to actually love God rightly. So let's begin with devotion. Devotion. Take a look at uh, Matthew chapter 22 again. Um, if you want sort of the main verse in which this kind of comes from, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Jesus actually is quoting from the Torah, uh, Deuteronomy, and he says from this particular passage, this is the original, it says this, you shall love the Lord. This is God speaking, by the way. This is out of what's called the Shema. It's something that the Jews, even to this day, will recite several times a day of reminding themselves who they are, who they belong to, and what their commitment, what their call is to by way of covenant. It says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. So it tells us pretty clearly how God is to be loved with this all-of-life reality, 
heart, soul, mind. The heart was sort of the center of an entire human being. Oftentimes when we think of heart today, we just tend to think in our Western mindset in terms of the emotions, just loving God with our emotions. That's not how a first century Jew would have understood this. They would have understood the heart as being the sum total of all that you are. Uh, he goes on to say your soul. The word soul there literally is the word psyche, uh, suke. And we obviously get the word you're thinking, your intellect. It's where the word psycholo- psychology comes from. Like love God with all the sum total of your being. Love God with your psyche, your mind, your mental capacities, your mental health. Love God with that. And then the lastly, he says, love God with all your might or your strength. If you guys have ever seen Jews along the Western Wall, they were kind of like reading the text and they're kind of bouncing like that. I remember one time going to Israel and kind of asking our tour guide, like, why, why do they do that? Just out of curiosity, I see this happen all the time. Why do they do that? And he says, oh, that's them uh, loving God with their strength. This is their might, their might. They're just kind of bouncing like that. And it was a way of basically them using their energy, their strength to love God with that by way of devotion. But the key word here is devotion. How do we love God is by way of devotion. But Going back upstream to this whole idea of heart, your wholeness, the, the idea of a heart is the sum total of everything. Uh, so, for example, in the book of Proverbs, uh, Solomon charges us. He says, make sure that you guard your heart because out of it come everything of life. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus would actually say this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus' whole point is that your heart, this driving engine of all that you are, your desires, what are the things you desire? Follow that upstream, and you will find it ultimately going back to your heart. It's one of the reasons why Jesus describes uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, And the heart and the desires are literally bound together. I mean, think about who you are as a human being and the desires that you have. Just think about the desires that you have right now. How many desires do you have right now circulating inside of you? Every one of us have different things that we desire. Every one of us have some form of narrative that tells us that if I have fill in the blank, whatever that is, that there's this thought that I will then become fully complete and fully satisfied. And the fact of the matter is, I'm, I'm actually, on a side note, I'm reading a book right now uh, by Joy Davidson, if you guys are familiar with her. She was the one that ended up marrying C.S. Lewis. So this is the whole story of her life from her angle, from a uh, perspective, and how she comes in contact with C.S. Lewis and falls in love with him, and she gets diagnosed with cancer, and she ends up dying. It's kind of a tragedy. It's sad, but he's deeply devoted to her. And when at some point you kind of have, and she's a really talented writer and poet and so on. So you kind of follow through this journey of her life. And one of the things she describes is how much she longed to have this uh, physical relationship with C.S. Lewis. But you know, he's an Oxford professor, Cambridge, Oxford, he's both those places. Super smart guy, more intellectual, less emotional. He's very guarded with his emotions, and she's longing throughout segments of this book, longing for him to open up, longing for him for him to just say, I love you, Joy Davidson. I see you, Joy. And she, she's not getting it. So there's this moment in the book where she's just realizing, I'm not getting what my heart's longing for. And then she has this encounter with God, and she describes that the, that the longings that she has for C.S. Lewis to say something to her, to acknowledge her, to put, her, to put his hand on her shoulder, to give her a hug, to get something which a good, proper Englishman is not necessarily going to be doing, especially one of his stature. And she's just 
dying inside until she gets to this point of just realizing all of these longings and desires that I've had to be affirmed and acknowledged by C.S. Lewis are really longings and desires that can only be satisfied by Jesus. And she has this, like, revelation. And she's like, my life has changed. And she describes this moment where she's got a big smile on her face, and her young little son, he's like eight years old, comes walking in the room, and she's crying. And he's like, Mommy, why are you crying? She's like, these are tears of joy. And there's, there's, there are tears of joy. There's tears of sorrow. But these are tears of joy because Jesus has fully satisfied me. In other words, what she discovered is that her joy is going to be found by way of devoting herself entirely to to Jesus. And it's a good moment for us just to ask, uh, what are you devoted to? Like, what dreams, what desires, what longings are you investing your time, treasure, and talents into, hoping that they will deliver something to you? Hoping that they will satisfy. Hoping that if you get X, Y, Z, whatever that is, it will somehow bring about some degree of completion in your life. Devotion is, first and foremost, something that Jesus, quoting Scripture, says, here's how you fully love God. So for us as a church in San Luis Obispo, on the Central Coast, our first and foremost desire is, like, how do we reframe our devotion around Jesus and devote ourselves to him? Secondly, let's move on to obedience. Um, Jesus repeatedly says, and I'm just going to read a handful of these passages because they're, they're so significant, just Listen to them. Uh, I only have a handful of them. Uh, I, I have one scripture up there for you to read, and then I'll read that, but then the rest of them are ones that you might want to take note on and read a little bit later. But I'll read them to you right now. Obedience is significant. Jesus would actually say this uh, in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see the connection? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What happens if you say, I love Jesus, but I don't really want to do what Jesus tells me to do? Or I want to re-script what I think Jesus is telling me to do. Or I don't like what he has to say about, you know, X, Y, and Z. Loving neighbor, loving enemy, guarding my sexuality. I don't like that. It doesn't fit in with my progressive dream. Well, you got a, you got a problem now. You got a choice to make. Love Jesus or love what is being communicated to us in our, this cultural moment. Like, you have a choice to make. And choose wisely, and I, w- I might add, very carefully choose wisely, because how you choose will shape you. It will make you a certain type of person. It will either malform you or it will form you into one that looks like Jesus. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 21 says, Whoever keeps my commandments, he loves me, and he who loves me will be loved with my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself in him. So Jesus kind of adds another layer to this. His whole point is that as you keep my commandments, you will be demonstrating, showing forth your love for me. What if you say, I love God, but I don't want to do what he has to say? Jesus would push back and say, you're, you're not loving me then. Because if I am king, then I have a claim on your life. And my claim upon your life has to amount for something. And if it doesn't amount for something in your life, then, then really there is a, a subtle, subversive statement that's going on as a subtext that essentially says, I want Jesus, but I also still want to retain lordship over myself, over my life, over the direction of my life. And Jesus would say, we have a problem then. We have a problem then. Because, number one, you don't know what's best for your life. I know you think you do. 
I know you think, you just follow your heart, because that's what Disney has always trained us to do, that you will then get your deepest longings and desires satisfied, and life will just go swimmingly. And Jesus' whole point is like, look, that script will always lead to a dead end, to brokenness. But I will be there to help you in the midst of that dead end and brokenness, because that's what I do. I help out those that are broken, and I will lift you up out of the ash heap of your life, because I'm a good God. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 23 says, as Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come and make our home with him. What Jesus is like alluding to here now is that the, the end game is not just submissive obedience. I want to be really clear on this. If This is one of the major, I would say, mistakes people think about Christianity. Christianity is a is, a, is oppressive, it's destructive. If I follow Jesus, then I'm gonna follow Jesus down this pathway of like blind obedience. And you're, you've completely believed the propaganda. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you obey me, my Father will come to you and love you, and I will come to you and love you, and you will be part of this beautiful cycle of love You'll be part of this, the, the heart of things. You'll be welcomed into the very thing. I mean, if you think about it, from the very young age of, you know, I don't know, kindergartners, whatever, we've ha- always had this longing of wanting to be in the center of things, all of us. But what if the very longing to be in the center of things, to be the one that's known, to be the one that's seen, to be acknowledged or recognized or affirmed, what, what if the real longing that's attached to that is a longing for significance, and that significance only comes as it's affixed or attached or tethered to the one who made you and knows you and loves you? In every other aspect, of longing for something that's not affixed to this God will lead us into a place of disappointment. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. But really, true life is going to be found in this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. First uh, John chapter 5, verse 3 says this, This is how we love God. We keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Second uh, John chapter 6, he says this, This is what love of God looks like that we walk according to his commandments. We walk in obedience. So again, you can't get away from the fact that to truly love God also means to live in obedience with Jesus. So again, if you were to kind of pause and do a quick little audit of yourself, what voices are you obeying? What are the chief voices in your life that you give allegiance to, you give devotion to, you, you follow uh, joyfully or obediently? And I, <laughs> I made this one up, so here you go. Uh, is, it, is it the zeitgeist? Or is it Jesus? Some of you are like, zeitgeist. I love this word, by the way. This has been around for a long time. But the zeitgeist, it literally means the, the spirit of the age, the spirit of the age. Is it the zeitgeist? Is that what we swear our allegiance to and our obedience to? Because it's a powerful voice. You can call it uh, democratic totalitarianism. Another big word for you. Democratic totalitarianism. That's the zeitgeist. In other words, it's this settled script in culture at large that says, if you do not abide by the general voice, the zeitgeist, then you are in disobedience to the spirit of the age, and you will be canceled. That's a powerful voice, and there's some huge motivating factors to align with that voice, but there is a very strong possibility that if you align with that voice, you will become disaligned with the voice of Jesus. They are not always harmonious. They don't always synchronize. 
All right, so number one, devotion. Number two, obedience. And then lastly, awareness. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 19 says this, we love him because he first loved us. In other words, this little phrase, we love him, and the word because, I think, is the key connecting word that I really want to focus on here, that, that John's tapping into something. He said, our love for God comes as a direct response to our awareness of his love for us. And I would even add, to the degree that you are aware of God's love for you, you will then arise and respond favorably, lovingly, full of devotion, full of obedience to the love of God, or how that understanding or lack of awareness of God's love or even denial of God's love. And again, some of us might be living in a state where it sounds too good to be true. Or maybe we've had some bad experiences in the past where maybe a father figure or we've had father wounds or challenges in our past where maybe someone that was a father type of a figure basically distorted our understanding of, of what love looks like that comes from a leader of high significance and value in our life. And what I think John and the rest of the New Testament is describing is that to the degree that we understand this love, then we will spend our energy following it upstream to the life that it gives. Let me, again, read to you Ephesians chapter 3. Paul would say this, after spending three whole chapters describing this incredible picture of God's love, he says this, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. And here's Paul's way of just simply kind of summarizing this. Again, to the degree that you know this love that God has for you, you will then either abandon or run or turn away from God's love because it feels too good to be true or you can't believe it or you won't believe it or you will press on into it, lean into it. And as you do, it will change you. So in summary, as a church, number one, we see our aim and our calling is to be a community of people that truly love God, love others, and do good. And that ends up on the very last thing right here because another way in which we demonstrate our love for God is by love of others, but I'm gonna leave this for next week because it's a whole another teaching in and of itself. But the point that I would make is this. The reason why the New Testament would describe this is because if you claim to love God and yet you don't love those that resemble God or represent God or bear his image, you're basically saying, I don't love God because I don't love these people because they annoy me and I don't like them. It becomes a tough teaching. We'll get to that next week more, but the, and we'll give some practical examples of, as to how we see ourselves being called to live this out. But the principle I want to leave with you guys, number one, is love for God. Do you, do you love God? What does that look like for you? Are these principles that are here baked into Scripture, are these the guiding principles that frame your life around them? Are you aligning yourself with these things? And if not, with these, then, then where do you go to get the schematic for your life to live according to? Is, who's framing this for you? And the invitation for us is to live a life of repentance and belief. Repentance meaning we turn from those things that misshape us or lead us away or lead us astray. And then belief meaning we come back and we center our lives around these, these basics of the teachings of Jesus and let that change us and shape us and make us what Scripture describes at some point, radiant. Like Jesus changes lives, and it's always good. So how about we all stand? I'm going to have Dan come on up, and he's going to lead us in one final closing song. And I want to invite you guys as we close to, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes right now, I'm going to pray over us. 
Uh, if you have need for anything in just the moment after the service, we'll create some space for you to be prayed for. We believe in the power of just Jesus meeting us. But let me pray for us right now. My invitation to you is that if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, or maybe you think that you have been a Christian, but at some point in your life, uh, the Holy Spirit has kind of shown you that really what you've had is more of a, a mixed tape version of Christianity. You've borrowed certain ideas here, or certain ideologies over here, or certain constructs over here, and you kind of matched them together to kind of craft something new and fresh. And again, th- that's not being faithful to the ancient historic faith. That's innovating. And innovation will always lead to brokenness because it cannot fully carry the weight of our sin and our brokenness. Only Jesus can. And so my invitation to you is to just do what Scripture teaches all of us. Repent and believe. If you're here this morning, you are a follower of Jesus. It's a way for us to remind ourselves of the depth of God's love that we have in Christ. Let me pray. Let's lift up our voices one more time, and then we'll conclude. Jesus, we thank you for your great love. And God, if there's anybody here right now that needs to place their confidence and trust in you, and if you're here right now, I want you just in the quietness of your own heart just to repeat after me. Jesus, confess my sin to you. And I ask you to wash me, to cleanse me, to make me new. I want to follow your words because your words are the way of life. So help me, wash me, cleanse me, empower me to be who you want me to be. So Jesus, right now, we...